A quick note before we start, this is part two of a conversation with Taurus Mullins on creating inclusive learning. If you've not listened to part one yet, I would strongly recommend that you go back. It'll make a lot more sense to listen to this after you've listened to the first part of our conversation. If you have already done that, great. Keep going. Learning. We've all experienced it, but how does it happen? More importantly, how do we create powerful learning experiences that change people's lives? In this podcast, we'll explore the world of adult career change education, from learning theories to classroom experiences to the kinds of people who make life-changing education possible. So come learn with us. This is the future of professional education, powered by Thrive DX. Another thing that we've talked about is just how some courses over index for privilege and mm-hmm. uh, or courses or assessments or you know anything in education could do it. But and you you kind of hit on this a little bit with the average student versus all student thing. Mm-hmm. but um, can you talk a little bit about that? what like how do courses over index for privilege? Yeah. So, you know, the Center for Public Education releases reports regularly that analyzes the the systems that are embedded in our in our education approach at least here in the US. And you might likely know this, but if you take a standardized test, so for most folks who want to attend higher education, you complete either the SAT or the ACT potentially. And what researchers have found is that baked in to those assessments are systemic and at times um, socio-stratified realities that disproportionately skew towards individuals who come from middle or upper middle class environments and or white leaning environments. And so what that does is that if we're using this as a quote unquote standard metric by which we're evaluating readiness for education, and then that allows you opportunity and attainment, if the system that we're using has been designed with an an unconscious bias mindset that skews towards a certain population, we're already baking in a disproportional advantage for those students to perform more effectively and then be assumed to be more college or post-secondary ready compared to their counterparts who likely would. And so you can do a simple Google search and pull up countless examples of questions that might be queried on those exams that we use as our foundational metric for education that are inherently flawed because A, they're designed by folks who might not have that awareness, but B, they're baked into a system that is attending to, quote unquote, the average student and not attending to what does a dynamic and a diverse student population look like and how are we being mindful of different learning environments and conditions that allow students to be successful. And so what I appreciate about that that question, Sean, is really being thoughtful and critically asking ourselves, yes, we should use data to inform our practice and we should use metrics to help to serve as benchmarks and guideposts. And we also have to take a step back and ask ourselves, who is this designed for? And what are the evaluation criteria that we are using? And how does that inform our decision-making process? And do we allow for there to be differentiation in terms of those metrics that are applied to all learners to account for maybe a student who grew up in a low income rural area that didn't have as much access that's not gonna be able to perform to the same degree 
on those exams as a student who maybe grew up in the suburbs outside of a major U.S. city. Mm-hmm. And that those, they look very different in terms of their experience, even if their racial or ethnic background could be the same. Their socioeconomic experience creates disproportionality within their experience. And so that's why I mentioned that piece about your zip code truly does have one of the biggest influences on your education attainment because we skew, at least, and I say we by the United States, we skew towards upper and towards middle and upper middle class, primarily white environments as that quote unquote average space for what a learner should look like. And we try to push everybody else toward that middle point, and that's not always going to be equitable or inclusive when we're thinking about the education environment. So then when you translate that into the classroom learning space, and we adopt that same mindset and lens through how we look at instruction, how we measure student progression through the curriculum, if, again, we don't critically look at how we're disrupting that model, we continue to reinforce the exact same tropes that keep certain people having access to education, which is a huge indicator of lifetime earning potential and social mobility compared to other populations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I don't think I heard you mention any names of tests. You're being very diplomatic, but I'm not going to. And the the test that that Taras is talking about, I mean, a couple of the ones that I know about are things like the IQ test, which is massively skewed towards privileged and sort of, you know, middle of the road American population. The SAT is skewed. Um, I, I don't know if you want to get into these and make some enemies in the testing industry. <laughs> Try <but> not to. <laughs> I'm willing to do it because it's, uh, it's it, no, it's it's such a problem, and it and it it, it you know the the snowball effect is real. Mm-hmm. Like if yeah. you are tested for you know via an IQ assessment that is going to work against what you actually understand, like it asks things that are just not whether it's not part Warranty. of your culture or part of your yeah. upbringing and Completely. then bases the result on mm-hmm. things that you couldn't possibly have known. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's an IQ test. Now your future yeah. is being determined by yep. an invalid test and, and it's a yep. huge problem. It's a, it's a massive problem. And I think that the question that if I was on the listening side of this, I'd be asking myself, so what can I as an individual do about that? Right? I love so, that you yeah, said like, that. That was literally the next <laughs> thing I wanted to talk about. <laughs> and so, you know, for me, Sean, what I, what I, what I would offer the, the listeners to think about is that obviously as an individual changing the systemic, um, metrics that we use to evaluate student learning and attainment is going to be a much longer journey and we have right. to really get more collectivist in our mindset and galvanize ourselves and that's why i mentioned that piece about community and so that's why i say that within your locus of control in your learning environment with the students that you support when you look at your community of practice to your right and to your left and your colleagues who are also reinforcing that whether that's within thrive dx or in any other education space how are you all collectively holding yourselves accountable to disrupting those pieces and being very clear about that slowly in a reverse snowball effect if we can do that consistently and look at our education systems differently and operationalize them in a way that allows for more equity and a more mindful approach to student learning with the belief that our students truly can achieve the appropriate outcomes, then we can start to push against those narratives. You know, like some universities in the U.S. have even started making standardized testing in terms of the SAT or ACT optional mm-hmm. just because they're finding more and more that it does impact 
which students have access to the education. And Loki doesn't necessarily indicate their ability to be successful in that environment regardless. Um, exactly. That's exactly that's what I was going to say, that the, it's not the best measure of potential success, yeah. and yet it's it used not. as a determinant of who goes to what college. It it's it's incredible. It is. It is. And, and, and again, if you are notwithstanding the recent scandal that happened with um, our well-known celebrity friends out in California, thinking about also when you when you when you consider thinking more enemies had... <laughs> <laughs> but when you consider it's not just about the zip code you live in but also like what you have access to do does your family have the means to get you preparatory materials and tutoring and opportunities for enhanced instruction so that you are more prepared to be trained to perform on that test appropriately, which then allows you to be a stronger contender when you apply to certain environments right. and spaces. Do you come in if you're a non-traditional learner or maybe an adult who is doing a career shift and ThriveDX offers you an amazing platform to explore that? Are you coming in with that historical narrative and model where you know how to learn very differently than somebody who wasn't able to explore that in the same way during their learning journey and their matriculation? And so all of those pieces, and that's why I mentioned that piece that we can't just assume that the learning journey of all of our all of the students that we're engaging with is congruent, because when we do that, we are doing a huge disservice to them. And also we're diluting our instruction. To a large degree like we got into education and we do this work because we want to support folks in their long-term outcomes and education is a huge determinant factor in those in in what that might look like and so it does require a little bit more work on our part to say okay as an educator what is my philosophy how does that align to my colleagues and how is my leadership reinforcing that and working in partnership with me and our community to advance that and to support that going forward because that has a direct impact on the students. Yeah, yeah. It strikes me too, you, you mentioned that experience in math in, in some very early grade. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's really lucky, it, it strikes me, it's just really lucky for you that that didn't go the other way that it could have, that mm -hmm. that didn't hold you back. Um, yeah. You were able to achieve despite what the teacher mm -hmm. thought was possible mm -hmm. for you. And yeah. it, it therefore, I mean, I'm sure emotionally or you know, intellectually that could be limiting to have that experience of someone who doesn't believe in you, mm -hmm. but at least you were able to prove that you could do it um, yeah. and, and sort of you know, get under her skin and change her mind yeah. a bit. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't have that opportunity and, and it just, no. it, yeah. And, and for me, like, that's one of the areas that I recognize was a privilege that I had, right? Like, I know that growing up for me, that in the zip code that I grew up in, in an upper middle class environment, I had access to certain things that others might not have had. I came home and my mother was a first grade teacher. My dad worked in higher education. So talking through homework, getting their help was embedded in what we did in our home ecosystem. So I know that my experience looked different compared to other folks who might have been in my learning environment at that time. Mm -hmm. And to your point, had I not had those, um, those, those, those mitigating factors to all support me, it could have looked very different. And I recognize that that's a huge privilege that I had in my educational journey, and I'm very thankful for that. And that's why I'm so appreciative of ex of experiences and programs that are focused and tailored on helping to 
counterbalance the scales mm -hmm. to the degree that we can, especially for folks who might be adult learners looking to make transitions. You know, when we were at Flatiron School together, that was one of the huge pieces that I loved was yeah. the Access Labs initiatives and the fact yeah. that we were able to create opportunity for folks who might not otherwise see themselves entering the software engineering and coding space. Um, and so when I think about my educational journey in a lot of ways, I attribute it to the foundations that I had in my home environment. And I think that that's important, especially back to my opening reflections, is that COVID has really integrated learning, work, and home in a very different way. And so maybe there's a student that you are working with who has to maintain two jobs while they're also trying to be a full-time student at the same time, or maybe they're a single parent, and this is their opportunity to make a career shift, but there are also some barriers that they have to navigate if childcare is inconsistent, right? And so if we're just using the middle of the bell curve and we're not taking in a total, a total perspective of the student and their learning experience and the world that they're existing in, we're, it's a little bit short-sighted. Yeah. to some degree. And it really can have a, a very real impact on their belief in self right. and their and how that shows up. And many folks, I, have, I assume on, on listening today, can attest not just to the teachers who maybe didn't believe in them, but how many educators did mm -hmm. believe in them and supported them and encouraged them and coached them to be successful. And through that process, it spurs them along. And so that's why I talk about that reverse snowball effect is that you have the opportunity to make a huge impact on countless students that you instruct, but for those one or two who maybe didn't see themselves being successful and then they see that their, that their leader actually believes in them, that can be transformative for a learner at no, no matter what point they are in the journey. I love that you said that because that's, I mean, that's part of the reason I think that a, a lot of people end up in teaching is being able to mm -hmm. have that impact and make that difference. Yeah. And I, I don't know that people outside the profession, I mean, you know, maybe they've had the experience of a teacher, like you said, who really believes in them. But some people may not understand just how pivotal, uh, you know, a teacher's support or the opposite of that can mm -hmm. be in a student's journey. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're especially in early childhood ed, um, it, they're kids, they're, they're little kids. Yeah. And yeah. they're looking at these teachers as not just adults, but like as almost a god. And yes. <laughs> for, <laughs> for the teacher to not believe in them or to, to, to you know, change their mindset in, in the way that that math teacher could have done for you, um, it, it's incredibly powerful. Um, yeah. as, as a platform for, for change in either direction. And so, yes. you know, we need to celebrate those teachers who are, like you said, who are making that difference, who are reaching out and, and really making a difference mm -hmm. for their students. Yep. Well, yeah. and it, can have, it, it has profound implications. And I think as well, taking a step back and not even making this focused on just the education experience, part of the power of education and being an educator is you're also helping to build the habits of mind for that individual that you're working with and so whether that is fostering a growth mindset supporting their approach to curiosity helping them to understand if you don't if you don't succeed how do you recover from that and continue to move forward through that those are skills that yes are effectively deployed in the education environment but those are habits of mind that directly impact your long-term growth, 
You yeah. do all of those things when you enter the workforce. You yeah. leverage all of those areas in every other aspect of your life. And so to even consider to, to dilute the gravity and the power that our educators hold is a huge missed opportunity for all of us if we don't consider the, the very real responsibility and privilege that we have to make very real implications for somebody's life if they're starting in the K through 12 sector or if they're an adult learner and what that means for them down the road in terms of their career trajectory. As a compliment to that, I'll, I'll also offer that I think one of the huge opportunities that many organizations are grappling with and still trying to identify the best approach to is how do we continue to ensure that our educators and our, our instructors are reflective of the learners that they're serving. Mm -hmm. There is nothing more powerful for a student than to see someone who looks like them or experiences the world in a similar fashion to them helping them to learn because that does two things. One, it, to your point, it gives them a model of, oh, wow, I see myself in that person. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, as the educator, it also changes your perspective of how students engage with you and how you engage with the students themselves because you also see yourself in that student and saying, oh, I remember when I was sitting in those shoes five years ago and how important it would have been for me to have somebody believe in me at that moment. Let me not replicate that historical model and show up differently now. And so I think that that's another huge opportunity. And that's why I mentioned that piece around leadership is when we have leaders who are keeping equity and inclusion at the forefront of their approach and their strategy and embedded in that is that they're recruiting and they're retaining a diverse pipeline of educators and instructors. It benefits everyone across the enterprise. I, I I often use the um, analogy that, I, that I've heard from well-known DEI leaders and facilitators that if we can attend to the least individuals who are going to be included and, and represented, then we're likely going to be attending to everybody else. And so the example that they give is back in the 1970s when the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. And as part of that, it required that any public serving environment and private have ramps so that you can get up and down the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Sure, that was designed for folks who might be wheelchair users. But it actually benefits everybody. If you are a parent pushing a stroller, if you are somebody who's moving and lugging uh, a dolly with heavy items, it benefits everybody. But it was designed initially to support a population that was overlooked and underserved. Mm -hmm. And so if we can do that, if we can mirror that model in other spaces by attending to the extremes of our bell curve, we're only going to benefit those students who are, quote unquote, the average in the center. I love that. Yeah. I want to go back for just a, a final piece of this. Sure. Um, yeah. You were talking about how someone can apply this in their own classroom. And a lot mm -hmm. of what you were talking about was um, the kind of introspection that we've been talking about, an examination of um, how how does your work, how does your community's work affect the system? What's my philosophy? How does it align? Which are all really good pieces of advice. And I, I don't mean to, to downplay that, but... For sure. someone who's looking for really specific things that they might be able to do like right now, because the, the stuff that, that we're talking about is, it strikes me as a bit longer term. Sure. Um, someone who's listening to this who goes, okay, I, I get it. I want to do this in my classroom, 
but it's going to take some time to, you know, build that introspection and community mm -hmm. of practice. What are things that, that that individual can do specifically, whether it's in their own classroom, in their school, in their environment, um, to, to really move the needle on this? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Sean. And my, my first thought that I, I'll share with, with everyone is when you're thinking about an, an instruction particularly, and we all try to have our learning outcomes, our learning objectives, but being very clear about what is going to be attainable and bite-sized for the students to learn and engage with. Making sure that as you are designing and developing that learning strategy and that lesson plan that you are backwards mapping everything back to those objectives and being very clear with the students as they are going through the process. We just covered X module or X content. It relates back to this learning objective so that they're able to draw that tether. And studies have actually shown that even in the K through six space, so elementary students, using that strategy is just as effective there as it is for higher order and adult learners. So that's not differentiated by educational um, level. Mm -hmm. The next piece is thinking about really carefully, and I think that to your point, this is where you as a leader get to immediately put this in practice and start to disrupt some of those systemic challenges. How are we actually assessing student learning? Are we assessing student learning in a one-size-fits-all approach, or do we provide differentiation in the way that we're strategizing that? And so maybe it's instead of using a test, we have students have an opportunity to do something that's experiential so they can demonstrate their learning, their learning progress and journey. Um, for adult-based learners, plenty of studies have shown that adults learn best by doing. And so are there opportunities for not just for it to be didactic in nature, but also for there to be spaces for the adults to try it on, to grapple with scenarios and problems of practice that they might have to deal with, and then to demonstrate that in a space that allows for collective workshopping and learning together. And then the final piece that I'll share is this shouldn't be happening in a vacuum to learners. Now, this might be a little bit harder for our younger learners because, you know, they haven't developed as much and they're still figuring out their learning journey. But especially for our older learners, once you get to the college and the, and the adult learner space, is be in conversation with them. Take that pause point and ask them, what worked well? What didn't work well? How can our instruction really meet you where you're at? And again, this requires more time. I'm not saying it doesn't. It requires more time. It requires more effort. And that can be exhausting. And the impact and the engagement of cultivating a responsive learning space is going to pay dividends, not just for us as education leaders, but also for the students in terms of they feel like they're in a responsive environment that is meeting their needs, that is attending to their learning journey, that it will allow them to be most effective and successful in the future. So those are the three initial strategies that I would suggest. Finally, leaning into that community practice. That is something that can easily be done. Many education organizations in the K through 12 space that I've had the opportunity to work with, they have their, 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 their learning communities. They call them PLCs, professional learning communities. They have their PLCs come together on a weekly basis. And so they come together and they grapple with how do we want to engage in the instruction around this topic? And then you're sourcing best ideas and you have colleagues that you can be in conversation with. And if, assumedly, you have a diverse set of colleagues because your leadership has kept that mindful, you're going to get different perspectives. That's also going to help you to attend the different learning styles in that space. And so also developing those PLCs, those professional learning communities of practice, is also a very simple and immediate 
tactic that organizations can deploy to allow them to be even more effective. And that, again, starts to create the right ecosystem and the conditions that maybe might not be a groundwater solution, because that's much more systemic, but likely will at least start to attend to that lake and what's happening there. Love how you pulled it back to that. Yeah. And it, it one of the things that struck me as you were talking about those specifics, and thank you for sharing that. I think that's going to be really helpful to to people who want to really try to put this into practice. But all of this, you, you said it requires more time to think in this way, and mm -hmm. it certainly does. It also requires humility as a teacher mm -hmm. to think, I'm not necessarily the person who knows best for all of my students. I know mm -hmm. what they need to learn. I know some really effective ways for them to learn it but I don't know what's in their heads and I don't know mm -hmm. what's in their background and I don't know what's going to be the most effective thing for that one person. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so approaching this with a sense of humility and a sense of inclusivity like that and saying, like you said, talk to the student. Um, yeah. What's working for you? What's not working for you? What am I doing that you know would be helpful if I did it differently? What have some other teachers done that was really helpful to you? Like that's number one, it empowers the learner, but number two, it really informs the practice in a very, very positive mm -hmm. way. Oh, it does. And you know, I'll, I'll share this last story before uh, we wrap up. Um, I talked about an, an, an educator who challenged me as a young learner, and I'd love to share a story about an educator who empowered me. Great. Um, I reflect back on my fifth grade teacher. Um, she was absolutely amazing. And I, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One, it was amazing because she was the first teacher that I had who looked like me. And so that was immensely powerful to walk into a classroom and to see somebody every day who reflected and looked like me. And already there was a sense of, I felt a little bit more community and comfort because I felt like this person likely would believe in me. To the point that we just talked about, she also was really mindful of getting to know me and building that relationship. And I still um, reflect on her even now. And so the amazing part was, was, after my fifth grade journey with her, went on to all my other experiences, all these great things, and have, as the fates would have it, she ended up coming back to my same elementary school as the principal 20 years later. Oh, wow. And so I had the chance during my mom's retirement um, celebration last year to go back and visit with former educators at that school. But I got to see my former fifth grade teacher, who's now their principal, and I got to reflect with her and share the impact she had on my education journey of not just being in the classroom space as a woman of color, but also believing in me as a student, getting to know me and encouraging me that I could learn and be successful. And so, again, just as many folks that we know who might have been challenging in our learning journey, I believe that there are even more folks who've probably been amazing lighthouses for us in that journey that have helped us spur us along. And so to the point that we were talking about, that is really important. And for her as a leader now, leading an entire school of educators, I know that she brings that inclusion and equitable mindset to her leadership and holds her teachers and the community accountable. But all of that started with her on the inside and how she had to build that habit of mind in herself and consistently deploy that across the course of her journey and her profession. And what I'll finally say, my, that's my, my final thought, is one of the best pieces of advice that I ever received from a mentor was that you know an organization's priorities by where they put their time and their money. And so the question that I would love to leave folks with is asking themselves, Maybe not where you're putting your money, because you don't necessarily have that luxury if, unless you're a senior, unless you're an education leader, but where are you putting your time? Yeah. 
and is that time truly having the best impact on the students in terms of how you want to see that in your role as a leader and an educator. So. That's fantastic. I love that story um, that, that you shared. It, it, it feels like it just sort of rolls all of this into what someone can actually do, um, yeah. which is to make that kind of difference for her own students and then continue on that career trajectory to a point where she can influence all of the students, mm -hmm. um, yeah. certainly in that school, but then also, you know, sort of dotted line to other principals that she knows in other yeah. school systems, yeah. and, and she can really make a huge in difference. That community practice again. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, it's the, the, what you just described about being able to go back to talk to that teacher who made such a difference for you and to be able to share your journey, like you said, and, and just how meaningful her intervention was and her interaction with you, it, it strikes me that it's worth just telling people that that is potentially the most meaningful thing in a teacher's career when students do that. Um, I've had students come to me and say, you've changed my life. You've, you've, mm -hmm. you know, you've, you've pushed me into a field that I would never have experienced and I would never have wanted to try. And this is now what I want to do and, and am doing. And, and I have, you know, multiple examples of students who've done that. But for me, just, it, it's incredible to hear that um, because that is why we teach. We want to make that yep. difference in our students. And so I would just encourage anyone listening to this if you have a teacher that you can think of, you know, like the example that Taurus just shared, um, someone who really made a difference in your life and, and maybe even changed the course of your life, reach out to them. They want mm -hmm. to hear it. They love to hear from their old students, mm -hmm. and they will really, really appreciate you sharing that. Yes, they will. And those are the, those are the, the, the bright spots that really help to spur folks along and remind them this is why I do what I do. So Absolutely. I agree with that 150%, Sean. Yeah. Well, Taras, I, I think people can understand why we love having you at our professional <laughs> development. Thank you so much for taking the time for this. I loved this conversation and this all of the great. ideas that you brought up, and I really appreciate it. Uh, I think our, our listeners will, too. No, thank you, Sean. It's always a pleasure to get to connect with former colleagues, and you know I love the Thrive DX family. And for anybody who is listening, thank you again for the opportunity to join you all today. Um, and I'm always available as a resource and a thought partner, and I encourage you to take the learning and move it forward. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, folks, that's all for now. Thanks for learning with us. Did you enjoy this podcast? please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you found it. And I hope you'll also recommend it to your friends.